The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. Awesome. Yeah, so 2 Kings 17, 21 to 23. That's going to be our base passage for this morning. And, and what we're going to do, we're going to move a little bit all over, all over the place. 2 Kings 17 uh, kind of is the, is the end. It's, it's where we'll end up. That's our, where we'll kind of finish um, today. But uh, it, it forms a bit of a... A summary of, of everything we're going to talk about. So we're going to use that as a bit of a, it's going to help us understand what we're doing. Um, we are in a series at the moment called Monarch. And, and what we're doing is we're looking for the Messiah. We're, we're looking for the one who was promised throughout the Old Testament who would come, God would send this one, and, and, and he was going to come from the human race, and he was uh, going to uh, be from the descendant of Abraham, he's going to be from the tribe of Judah, and, uh, and as Hannah prayed at the beginning of 1 Samuel, um, the Lord will raise up his anointed, the Lord will raise up his king. And so we're, we're assuming, well, we, you, might have, you might assume as you read through First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, that... The Messiah is going to show up somewhere in these books, and the reality is that he's not. But we're still going to look anyway, because as we look for the Messiah in Samuel and Kings, we'll get more and more hints of the one who is to come, the, the Christ, Jesus, our, our Christ, our Messiah, our King, who uh, turned up in, um, in the Gospels in the New Testament. And so that's, that's the, the general gist of the, of the series that we've been, been in. This is the second last week of that series. So we've looked at um, a, all, a bunch of the kings, and then today we're looking at um, Israel in the north. So let's pray, and then uh, we'll spend, some, spend this time in God's Word. Lord, your faithfulness really is higher than the heavens. Lord, when we are faithless, when we do not trust in you, Lord, your faithful love reaches to heaven, your faithfulness to the clouds. Lord, your faithful love is truly priceless. And we have done nothing to earn that love. We have done nothing to merit that love. We we continue to not not earn it, not merit it, Lord. And yet your love for us is eternal and it truly is faithful love. It is is an unconditional love, a love that does not falter. It is a love that is consistent and constant, Lord, and you, you love us, Father. And so, Lord, where our request this morning is that you would continue to be faithful to us this morning in your word. By your faithful love, Lord, would you encourage us where we need to be encouraged? Would you convict us where we need to be convicted, Lord? And would you guide us, Father? Lord, where we are feeling empty and lonely and discouraged, discarded, Father, we entrust ourselves to you and ask that you would remedy that. We ask that by your spirit, that your spirit, that he would point us towards the sun. And we would know that you are with us, Lord. We are not lonely, we are not discarded. You have not forgotten us. So Lord, I ask for your help 
in this this morning. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would be with us. Empower these words, Holy Spirit, and where, uh, where I do not speak on your authority, but my own Father, I pray that that would be quickly forgotten. And that your word would remain and reside in us, Lord, forever. Amen. Have you ever had one of those moments where you felt that you'd been forgotten, left behind? Maybe it was a parent who forgot to pick you up from school one day, or maybe uh, you know, you're at the shops and with your mom and dad, and suddenly you realize you can't find them, and you think they've left without you, and it can be kind of terrifying. Um, a number of years ago, I was at a, uh, I was a really little kid. I was at a kids' program at a, uh, the City Tabernacle Church in Brisbane. My friends were, um, the, the, the church was running the thing, and our family went to it. And there was this, these big doors that led into this kind of back storage area. And I'm like, oh, what's behind here? And I went through there, and then the doors closed behind me, and I couldn't open them behind me. And it was like eight o'clock at night, and people were kind of going home. And the, my immediate thought was, they're all going to leave without me, and they're going to forget that I'm here, and I'm just going to have to make do for the weekend until someone comes back here on Monday, I guess. Um, that was my, you know, my nine-year-old thinking, like, like 10 seconds into the door closing, start making plans, start building a fire, you know, just get yourself, start trying to survive. Um, and I felt forgotten, even though nobody forgot me. And I just had to twist the door handle a little bit more and I opened it, it was fine, actually. But those times where we feel forgotten and, and left behind and that everybody's kind of moved on without us can feel pretty lonely, can feel pretty terrifying. Um, you can feel like the whole world is in on it, like they, they, you're the one who's been left behind. The whole world knows how silly you are and they've all moved on without you. Another time when I was in grade seven, uh, we, we had the our year seven Canberra trip. We went down to Canberra and one of the days was we went to the ski slopes and um, we got all our gear and we got like the, the ski boots and the poles and the skis and we had our bags. And we, the, from where the bus stopped to where we had to go was about, I don't know how long it was. When I was in grade seven, I, I think it was about 15 kilometers. It probably was only a few hundred meters, but with the snow and all the gear, it felt like a long way. And so we're all trudging through the snow together, kind of all getting excited about skiing and talking about who's going to be the best. And then we got there and I realized that I dropped my ski pole or one of the important piece of kit back at the bus. So I turned around and I told the teacher and she said, don't leave your stuff here because someone will collect it. So I was carrying all this gear, trudging through the snow to get all the way back to the bus and I found the ski pole and I turned around and trudged all the way back again. And by the time I got back to where everybody else was, they had all been assigned into groups. They were all off in their kind of like how to ski sessions and I was completely like... Like, what, what, do I do? what do I do? Where do I go? I've been forgotten and everybody's moved on without me. And then I found a teacher and she was like, just go find somewhere. It doesn't matter. So I tried to find somewhere. I think I joined the wrong school for a while. Um, 
And as a result, I didn't learn how to ski that day. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to stop. I tried teaching myself. It was a disaster. And I spent most of the day just kind of walking around with my ski gear going, I don't know what to do with this. And then eventually I, I just was like, I'm just going to do it. And I put the ski gear on and I hopped on the chairlift and <laughs> went to the top um, and didn't realize when you, get, when you hop off the chairlift, you just got to go. And I didn't realize that. I thought I'd hop off and they'd wait for me and they didn't. And I went off and I fell over and landed right in front of everybody and nobody could, could help me. And so I just laid there watching people just kind of like hop off this thing. And it was a terrible day. But I kind of felt like... Like, you know that feeling when you're like, you feel like you've been forgotten and everybody's kind of moved on and, and you can feel like a bit of a dill and like you've missed some vital thing. And sometimes it feels a little bit like that with God. Through no fault of God, it can feel like we've been forgotten, that God has forgotten us. Everybody else seems to be going just fine with their life, just going, they've gone fine with their relationship with God, and somehow we've missed some crucial lesson, some crucial moment, and now we feel like the world's moved on, God's moved on, He's forgotten us, and we've been left behind. And, and the central theme that I want to focus on as we look at this passage today and consider is the faithfulness of God. And, and I want us to... Uh, consider, and, I want, and my hope is that the faithfulness of God will be something that will be of increasing comfort to us. The faithfulness of God can be and should be the answer to our questions like, what if my sin has just become too much? Like, what if God doesn't like me? I know God loves me, but what if God doesn't like me? What if, if, out of all the people in the world, what if I'm the one who just exacerbates God the most? Like, I know that Paul says, you know, um, God loves all, God's, God loves, God uh, died for sinners, of which I'm the worst, but maybe I'm worse than Paul. Maybe I'm the one person who's worse than that. Has God forgotten me? And those questions uh, are answered by the faithfulness of God. The faithfulness of God is really good at answering those questions. God is unchanging in his nature. God is true to his word. God has promised salvation to his people, and God will keep his promises forever. And no matter what we're walking through, God is faithful and he will not abandon us. God was faithful to us, God is faithful to us, and God will continue to be faithful to us. God was faithful to us in sending us his son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins and atone for our iniquities and, and remove all our sin between us and God, ensuring that there, was, there is no uh, barrier, no obstacle between us and God. We can have a relationship with God. God was faithful to do that. God is faithful to us now. He sent his Holy Spirit, and his Holy Spirit points us towards the Son, points us towards Jesus Christ. And as we behold the face of Jesus Christ, we are transformed from one degree of glory to another, and we are constantly changed and growing by the Holy Spirit. And God will be faithful to us as we step over into eternity. God will remain faithful to us, and his promises will come to their perfect fruition then. God is faithful to complete 
the work of salvation that he began in us, both in our lives and in eternity to come. And the text that we're studying today is going to lead us there, but it's not going to be in the way that we might think. In, in fact, the, the text that we're looking at is, is quite a hard text today. It's a season of the history of God's people that is quite tragic. And just to give you a bit of context, the nation of Israel has just split in two. King David, uh, the, the royal descendants of King David, they ended up in the southern kingdom of Judah. And then the, then the descendants of Israel, the, the half of Israel that went to the north, they are following a king named Jeroboam. And it's this kingdom in the north, and, and King Jeroboam and the kings who came after him, it's this northern kingdom of Israel. That's our focus today. We're going to look at the southern kingdom of Judah next week. But today, we're looking at the northern kingdoms of Israel. And these northern kingdoms, they, they, they split off from the southern kingdoms following a, a king named Jeroboam. He wasn't related to David, and he's basically the one that's, that led the split away from the rest of Israel. And the thing about these two kingdoms is that they follow a very similar kind of parallel path together. They both have a similar number of kings. They both, have, they, they both uh, over time, wander away from God. They both have prophets coming to them saying, return to the Lord. They both continue in their sin. They both end up being exiled by foreign powers. But it's the southern kingdom who return after being exiled and not the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom comes to basically somewhat of an end. Virtually non-existent kind of thing anymore or unrecognizable. We know of God's faithfulness to the southern kingdom. They were in exile, but then God brought them back and they rebuilt the temple. But the northern kingdom, they, they didn't return from exile after that. The northern kingdom doesn't have much of a happy ending. And that's what makes this text hard. We read it and we, we might wonder, is God really faithful? We know he is about the southern kingdom, but is he faithful to the northern kingdom? And if not, does that mean that there's a chance that he might not be faithful to me? So we're going to be camped out in 2 Kings 17, 21 to 23. That's going to be our base passage. Uh, and that passage is really a neat history of the, it's a simple history of the northern kingdom of Israel. And so we're going to treat uh, these three verses like four chapters of, a, of an intense long story. Um, and here are the kind of the, the titles of the four chapters of the four points. The first point is this, the split of the kingdom. We get that in verse 21a, the split of the kingdom. Point number two is the fall of Jeroboam. That's, that's verse 21b, the fall of Jeroboam. Point number three is the fall of Israel. That's verse 22, the fall of Israel. And then point number four, the judgment on Israel. That's verse 23, the judgment on Israel. So we're going to take that line by line as we lead, as we work our way through the history of Israel's king. So reading from verse 21, that first, uh, that first verse. When the Lord tore Israel from the house of David... Israel made Jeroboam, son of Nebat, king. So this is recapping the split of the kingdom. David's son, Solomon, um, he turned his heart away from the Lord. We looked at Solomon last week uh, because of his deep de devotion and attachment to his many foreign wives and then their many foreign gods. 
After building the temple of the Lord, Solomon went on to build altars and, and high places, these, these, what's known as high places, these places of worship to worship false gods. And, worship, and they set up temples to worship these false gods. So God sent the prophet Ahijah to come to one of Solomon's servants, a man named Jeroboam, a good and righteous man. And he told him that he would be king. Jeroboam would become king over 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel. And as long as Jeroboam obeyed the Lord and walked in his ways and, and walked in the statutes of the Lord, God would give Jeroboam a lasting dynasty just as he gave to David. As long as Jeroboam remained faithful to the Lord, then the Lord would remain faithful. The Lord would, would uphold him and give, give his descendants a long-lasting dynasty just as he did for David. Solomon died shortly after, and then his son, Rehoboam, took the throne. But Rehoboam introduced these very... This, the connection hadn't split at this point, but Rehoboam, king of all of Israel, uh, he imposed these very harsh conditions of, upon his people. And ten of the tribes went, we're not, we're not copping this, and they followed Jeroboam, and they, they split off from the southern kingdom. And this, the northern kingdom retained the name Israel, and the southern kingdom retained the name Jer- uh, retained, uh, kept the name Judah. So we've got Israel in the north led by Jeroboam, Judah in the south led by Rehoboam. And if you're ever reading through First and Second Kings, um, which one's in the north, which one's in the south, you kind of, I find it hard. I think Israel, Judah, Israel is in the north, I comes before J. That's, just my, that's my thinking. So every time I say it, I go, I becomes before H-I-J. That's cool. And Israel in the north, Judah in the south. This brings us to the next part, point number two, the fall of Jeroboam. Our base text says, Then Jeroboam led Israel away from following the Lord and caused them to commit grave sin. Didn't last long. Didn't last long. There were some high hopes for Jeroboam when Ahijah first comes to him. However, it wasn't long before his love of being king overtook his love for the Lord. And he became concerned that his people in the north would return to the south because that's where the temple was. The temple that Solomon built was in the southern kingdom. It was in Jerusalem, in the southern kingdom. And so it says in, verse, in 1 Kings chapter 12 that <clears throat> Jeroboam made two golden calves. This is 20, uh, chapter 12, verse 28. Jeroboam made two golden calves, and he said to the people, Going to Jerusalem is too difficult for you. Israel, here are your gods who brought you up from the land of Egypt. He set up one in Bethel and put the other in Dan. This led to sin. The people walked in procession before one of the calves all the way to Dan. If we know Israel's history with golden calves... This makes our head spin, right? He said, this is basically doing the, same, the exact same thing that Aaron, Moses' brother, said. This is the Lord. Who brought, these are the gods who brought you out of, the, the, out, of, out of Egypt. Set up one far north in Dan, one a bit further south in Bethel. God gave Jeroboam the chance to repent, but he didn't. And he, instead, he persisted in his evil way, and he led Israel away from the Lord. And then this becomes the terrible pattern that was set for the long line of Israel's kings to come after Jeroboam. It says that Jeroboam's son Nadab, that he walked in the ways of his father and the sin that he had caused Israel to commit. And then Nadab was assassinated by a guy named Basha, and he did what was evil in the Lord's sight, and he walked in the ways of Jeroboam. 
And then Basha's son Elah became king in his place, but then he was assassinated by his servant Zimri, and Zimri became king in his place, and then after Zimri came his son Omri, and both of these guys, we are told that they both walked in the ways of Jeroboam and caused Israel to sin. And this is the pattern of the kings of Israel in the north. Each king, or most kings, are compared to Jeroboam. Did they worship the God of Israel alone, or did they, like Jeroboam, worship false gods? Did they get rid of the idols in the high places, or, like Jeroboam, did they go to them and worship at them? Were they faithful to the covenant that God had made with them? Were they obedient to God's commands? Did they walk in God's ways? Did they keep God's statutes? Did they stand back corruption? And did they bring about justice for the weak and the oppressed? Each, uh, most of the kings are compared. Did they walk? Uh, Jeroboam just comes up over and over again. Did they walk in the ways of Jeroboam? And the answer for the kings in the north, were they obedient to God? No, they weren't. Beginning with Jeroboam and every evil king, all 18 of them, all the way through to the exile is a blanket no. The kings of Israel rejected the worship of God and they worshipped false gods. They didn't get rid of the idols, they didn't get rid of the high places in the lands, and they were not faithful to the covenant. Of particular note is a guy named Ahab, King Ahab. He's notoriously evil, son of Omri, son of Zimri. He stands out amongst all the other kings. Not only because several chapters in the book of Kings are devoted to documenting his rule and reign, but also because it says in, in 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 30, Ahab did what was evil in the Lord's sight more than all who were before him. Then, as if following the sin of Jeroboam was not enough, he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and then proceeded to serve Baal and bow and worship to him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he had built in Samaria. Now, just a quick note about Samaria. At that point, Samaria had become the capital city of Israel. And as you read through the Old Testament, you'll find that this name Samaria becomes almost synonymous with with the northern kingdom of Israel itself, especially in the mouths of the prophets. So if you're reading the prophets and they're talking about Samaria, there's a good chance they're talking about Israel as, treating Samaria as representing Israel as in, in the north as a whole. Samaria also became home of the Samaritans, which we read about in the Gospels. And so this is going to help us understand down the track why there's such disparity between the Samaritans and then, and then the Jews, God's people called the Jews, because, because of this. This is to help us understand the, the Samaritans in Jesus' day. So King Ahab, like the kings of Israel before him and after him, continued to lead God's people away and into sin, away from the Lord. And not only only that, but he built a temple for Baal in Samaria, for the false god Baal, and then uh, encouraged the people to go and worship in Samaria, the northern kingdom, the capital of the northern kingdom. And we've just got to get our bearings for a moment. This is God's people. These are the descendants of Abraham. Abraham was the one who God promised uh, blessing to. God promised that he would uh, give him land and, and multiply his descendants, and he would make this covenant with Abraham. And, then, and these are Abraham's descendants. These are God's people who uh, God rescued out of slavery in Egypt. Who God brought them through the Red Sea, through the desert, gave them the law. 
He was with them as they entered Jericho. He went into Jericho before them and, and, and brought them, gave them the land. Uh, this, is the, this, is, this is the people of God who, who had the tabernacle and then the temple. These are God's people, and yet here they are worshipping at a temple called Baal. They're in the promise. God's people, God's covenant people in the promised land, worshipping Baal. God's people had certainly strayed. And this is an important thing that we've got to take note about the role of the king. How the king went, so also the people went. This is the next point, the, the, the point number three, the fall of Israel. So back to our, ver- our base text, in, in verse 22 we read that the Israelites persisted in all the sins that Jeroboam committed and did not turn away from them. So the people... Not just the kings, but the people became complicit in this persistent sin and rejection of God. It wasn't just that there was dodgy kings in charge here. It's that God's people were strained from the Lord. However, God also in this time preserved a remnant of people, of his people, who persisted in faithfulness to him. And it's at this point that we're introduced to a prophet named Elijah in 1 Kings 17. Uh, the prophets were God's mouthpiece to his people. When they strayed and when they disobeyed him, God sent the prophets to his people to call them back to covenant faithfulness, to come back to the Lord. Now, up until this point, uh, the prophets had played a comparatively minor role in, in, in the governance of God's people. Like they, they are certainly there. You get prophets like Nathan and prophets like Ahijah and, and other prophets throughout. However, when it comes to Elijah, the, the prophets kind of take a bit more of a center stage. It become far more important in the overall narrative of God's people. Their, their words and their actions take up a whole lot more real estate in the Old Testament from this point onwards. But that, and so in First and Second Kings, the prophets Elijah and Elisha, these guys stand out. Elijah, uh, Elisha was Elijah's apprentice, and these guys stand out. They played a huge role in, God, in calling God's people back to covenant faithfulness, and God used these guys to, do, uh, to perform massive miraculous deeds and to demonstrate his power, that he was still their God. He was still the God of power, who, the God who brought them out of Egypt with, the, with all the plagues and, with all, um, and bring them through the Red Sea. During this time, we also get other prophets. Uh, their ministry was less in the miraculous and more in spoken oracles, in sermons, in demonstrations, and declarations to return to the Lord. And this is where you get prophets such as Hosea and Amos and Micah. And these guys spoke to Israel on God's behalf, calling them to come back to the Lord who was faithful to them and to be faithful to the Lord. These prophets pointed out the idolatry of the kings who had led, that, that, that idolatry had led to injustice and, and a lack of mercy in the people, where the rich were favored and the poor were trampled and, and pushed out. They were sold into slavery and ignored. They pointed out Israel's hypocrisy and they warned them, if you continue to reject the Lord, God will bring justice upon you and you will experience God's righteous judgment. This is what the prophet said, turn from your ways, return to the Lord, repent of your sin, turn to the Lord. And they also, these prophets, pointed, to a, uh, pointed forward to a future time where God would restore them through a future messianic people. God loved his people. He would not abandon them forever, and he would send someone to right the wrongs of his people. And as we study these kings, we get these glimmers of hope here and there. 
There are times where it looks like the, the people of Israel are turning to the Lord. It looks like what's oh, going to happen. Like one time, uh, Elijah set up this big uh, competition kind of thing between him and the prophets of Baal. Him versus 450 prophets of Baal, and God won. God won. And the people of Israel, they, they say, oh, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. And we're like, okay, here it is. They turn around, but then it's kind of short-lived. We don't really know what happens after that. They, they just go back to their unfaithfulness. There are some kings who, who make an effort to strike out, to strike out the worship of, um, of, the, of the, strike out the worship of Baal. King Jehu is particularly important in that, but then he doesn't go all the way to rejecting all of the false gods. And they get, it gets to the point in, chapter, in 2 Kings chapter 10, verse 32, it says rather soberly, in those days the Lord began to reduce the size of Israel. The coming judgment of God upon his people in the north was now on the horizon. God was not looking to expand them and grow them and multiply them. They were getting smaller. And the events that follow begin to anticipate this final point, the judgment on Israel. So back to our, 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 our base text, 2 Kings 17, verse 23 now. Finally, the Lord removed Israel from his presence, just as he declared through all his servants, the prophets. So Israel has been exiled to Assyria from their homeland to this very day. The remainder of the story of Israel tells us what happened. In 2 Kings 13, we come to a guy named King Jehoahaz, and it says that he did what was evil in the Lord's sight and followed the sins that Jeroboam, son of Nebat, had caused Israel to commit, and he did not turn from them. Then his son, Jehoash, did not turn from all the sins that Jeroboam, son of Nebat, had caused Israel to commit, but he continued in them. And even at this point, even in, at this point, God is still willing to be gracious and merciful to his people. God, God still wants his people to come. If they would turn to him, he would, he would bestow his mercy and grace upon them, but they continue to harden their hearts against the Lord. Each king continued in the sins of Jeroboam and led Israel to sin. Each king. Until we finally get to the last king of Israel, Hosea, at which time God raised up the foreign king, King Shalmaneser of the Assyrians. Shalmaneser attacked, besieged, and conquered Samaria and deported the Israelites to Assyria. It says in 2 Kings 17.6, that in the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria. He deported the Israelites to Assyria and settled them in Halal along the Habor, Gozens River, and in the cities of the Medes. God's people hardened themselves against the Lord. They knew the truth about their God. They had every prophet and every seer telling them to turn from their evil way and to keep God's commandments, but they didn't. From Jeroboam, who tore Israel away from Solomon, all the way through to the last king, Hosea, God's people suffered a tragic downfall that ended in the violent and final exile, never to return to the land again. Now, when we read a passage like this, we naturally ask, did God's faithfulness to his people fail? Did God's patience run out? Did his, did his faithful love reach some kind of expiry date? 
And the importance of these questions is that if God's faithfulness towards Israel failed, then can his faithfulness towards me fail too? Is it possible for God to forget me and to move on without me? Right now, maybe life hasn't turned out as you expected. Right now, maybe your plans have fallen apart. Your plans have fallen through. These things that you had designed, this is what we're going to do with our lives. This is what I'm going to, I'm going to have in my life. And, and the bottom's fallen out. And you're wondering, has God forgotten me? Or maybe it's in your morning devotions. You open up God's word and you read it and it kind of it's like reading cardboard. Like it's just Has God forgotten me? I had that this week, I think it was Thursday morning, read God's word and I was like, What? Just for some reason it's not penetrating my heart. Has God forgotten me? Has God moved on without me? The answer to these questions is no. Absolutely not. And there's at least two reasons that I've got this morning why I think so. The first reason is from this text. The second reason comes from the ministry of Jesus. And so this first reason is that what we are seeing here in the northern kingdom of Israel is not a failure or a fault in the faithfulness of God, but a failure in his people to heed God's warnings and to turn from their evil ways. This was not a failure of the faithfulness of God. God remained faithful to Israel over and over and over again. And even when they rejected him and despised him and turned away from him, God still sent his prophets to call them back to covenant faithfulness. He didn't reject them and say, okay, you're done. It's not like he just got to a point where like their sin was too much. He's like, I can't handle this anymore. No, this isn't the failure of God's faithfulness to his people. This is the faithfulness of God to his own nature to bring about justice against sin and evil. God cannot abide sin. An ice cube can better sit on the surface of the sun than sin can remain in the presence of God. It's way too simplistic to say that, that Israel's sin just got too much and God just couldn't handle it anymore and that his patience and, and faithfulness ran out. No, Israel knew the truth of their God and they rejected him anyway and, and his judgment upon them was his, was his faithfulness to his righteousness. What we're seeing here is what I think Jesus means when he talks about blasphemy of the, of the, against the Holy Spirit what we often think of as the unforgivable sin. He's talking about a hardness of heart towards God that hears and knows and even acknowledges the truth about God and yet walks away from it. It's when someone hears the gospel and then shrugs their shoulders at it over and over again and never turns to the Lord. Some people hear the message of the grace and the kindness of God. And instead of turning to him, they, they think, well, if Jesus is, is that kind, if Jesus is that gracious, then I can basically do whatever I want. I can just kind of, I can just do whatever I feel like. God, if he's that kind, that, that, that patient with me, I can do whatever I feel like. And at, certain, at some point, 
I'll turn to him. I'll, I'll make sure I say that prayer just before I die. I'll get that sorted out, and his, you know, that'll just be totally fine. This is what Paul talks about in Romans 2. This is the person who despises the riches of God's kindness. They despise the riches of his restraint. They despise the riches of his patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead us to repentance. God wants us to repent of our sins and turn to him. And so his kindness and his patience to us, his faithful love towards us is intended to lead us to repentance, that we would look at how gracious and compassionate he's been with us, and we wouldn't go, sweet, I can do whatever I want then. No, we would go, oh, that God, he is king, and we would return to him. Paul warns such people, because of your hardened and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. This is where Israel strayed. They knew the truth of God, and yet they didn't turn from their sin. And the warning, they are a warning to us that yes, God is faithful, and there are no limits to his faithfulness, but there is a limit to the human heart. There is the, the natural time limit to respond to his mercy and grace. That there will come a time where you will breathe your last. And if you have not repented for your sins before that moment, that is the natural limit. That is the limit. There is no second chances after that. There's also the spiritual limit for our, of our hearts. That if we, the more we continue to harden our hearts toward God, the easier it will become to remain obstinate towards him. Yes, God can pierce any heart with his love. Absolutely. I'm not saying that as that we can harden our, point, our hearts to the point that God can never save us. But we have to receive his mercy. We have to receive his grace. We must receive and we must turn to him. Friends, if you're here and you are not a Christian, if you have so far in your life rejected the grace of God and you are relying on your merit, your behavior, your good works, you're relying on what you can do for God, then you need to repent and turn to the Lord. You need to. Not because I'm saying it, but because there's an eternity. And there are two options of eternity. One option is eternal ecstasy. Bliss before the Lord God of hosts. Complete satisfaction and fulfillment for eternity. The other option is to be torn from the presence of the Lord. Eternal conscious torment. We need to, you need to repent of your sin. You need to repent of your sin. Because there will come a day of judgment. And contrary to popular belief, God will be the one asking the questions. Sometimes people say, oh, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God about this. No, you're not. You're not. On that day of judgment, you will be silent, naked, trembling before him. The most vulnerable you could ever be, you will be quivering before him if you are not in Christ. Your resume will not be enough. Your good works will fall far too short. Your generosity will be far too cheap. 
Your charity will be far too little. Your best intentions will be insufficient. Do not continue to harden your heart before the Lord, against the Lord. Become humbly to him. Let him save you. You might be thinking, what hope is there then if that's going to be the case? The hope is in Jesus Christ. To put your faith in Jesus Christ. Because when you do, when you trust in Jesus Christ, the Bible says that we become in him and he becomes in us. And anything that is true of Jesus becomes true of us. And so on that day of judgment, we'll be with Jesus. And he'll be like, yeah, this guy's with me. This girl's with me. His righteousness will be on us. Our, our sin was on him, but that, that got left at the cross. And so our sin will be forgotten. The second reason why we know that God's faithfulness has not failed here is that after all this has happened, um, we still see God's faithfulness to Samaria, to Samaria, to these people in the ministry of Jesus Christ. So after Shalmaneser, the, the king of Assyria who conquered Israel, after he exiled the people of Israel, there was a bunch of people who were left in the land. And then Shalmaneser brought in a whole lot of other random nations and a whole lot of refugees into the, into the northern kingdom of Israel. And these, these people, it was a, a, a mishmash, a total, uh, total complex mix of people. And these people came in with their, with their cultures and with their foreign gods as well. And, and so they started worshipping their gods in the land of Israel, in, God, in, in God's promised land. And then God sent lions into Israel. Like, it doesn't tell, tell us how many lions, but enough lions that they started eating people and it became a real problem. <laughs> like, and so the people there, like, they sent word back to Shalmaneser and they're like, the lions are eating everybody. And they kind of figured that the God of the land had not been appeased. They didn't know who this God was, and so they needed to find out how can they kind of keep this God of the land happy. And so Shalmaneser sent a priest from Israel back to the land, and this priest went back and taught them about Yahweh and taught them about following God and obeying him in the Torah and all that kind of stuff. And so they kind of adopted the, 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 the God's law, the Torah, the, the Pentateuch into their culture and, and who they were as a people. And so you have this mishmash of people. Some of them are, are Jews that remain and they've intermarried and they, their parents were Jews or whatever. And then there's this complexity of, of gods and one of them is Yahweh and it's this kind of this mishmash. And that's how Samaria kind of remained up until the day of Jesus. This is why the Jews of Jesus' day really despised the Samaritans. Because they were a kind of half-breed of God's people. They were the people who had been unfaithful to God and had not returned to him. But God has not forgotten these people. God did not forget Samaria. He had not left these people behind. And we see this in John chapter 4. If you want to turn there, you can. When Jesus himself went to Samaria and he met a woman at a well... He was on his way to Galilee. He had to stop in Samaria along the way. He ended up staying there for a couple of days. And this woman, being a Samaritan, like we read this and we should think, okay, Samaria, Samaritan, this, these are the people who were unfaithful to God, who remained hardened towards God. But this woman, even amongst the Samaritans, 
is, is, does not maintain her standard. She's not even acceptable in a Samaritan's eyes. Uh, commentators speculate that the reason why she was at the well in the middle of the day was because of the, she was still a social outcast, even amongst the Samaritans. Her sin had caused guilt and shame to rise up, and she was embarrassed, and so she would go to the well in the heat of the day to avoid people. And Jesus meets this woman at this well, and he brings grace and mercy to her. And then this woman goes back into town, and she starts telling people about Jesus. And then John chapter 4, verse 39 says, Now many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of what the woman said when she testified. He told me everything that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of what he said, and they told the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said, since we have heard for ourselves and know that this really is the Savior of the world. Did you hear that? This is the northern kingdom of Israel. This is the, this is the people of this is the Samaria, the Samaritans. And they go, Jesus really is the savior of the world. The place where they had for so many years rejected God and never returned to him. It's to these people that Jesus offers salvation once again. And then after his resurrection, and just before he ascends into heaven, Jesus gets his disciples together, and we read in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says to them, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And this blew me away this week. I've read that a thousand times. I've preached from that dozens of times. And I've always just figured that Samaria, the reason why Samaria was there was just because geographically it was, a, it was just like a concentric circle going out from, from Jerusalem. They were in Jerusalem, so all Jerusalem, then all Judea, and then Samaria. But Samaria is kind of not on the outside of Judea. It's kind of north of, of, Jude, of Judea, but that's okay. It's kind of like it's going out there and then to the ends of the earth. And Samaria was like a stepping stone to the ends of the earth. But then I was talking about this passage with a, a pastor from Brisbane this week, and he was like, oh, yeah, Acts 1.8. And I was like... Oh, and Samaria. That when, when, when Jesus has resurrected from the dead, he's about to send the disciples out to go and, and, and plant churches, and, and, and the gospel is about to go into the, the entire world. And he says, the Holy Spirit's power is going to come upon you, and you're going to witness about me. You're going to tell people about me. At, at the, 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 seed, the, the, the seedbed of sending the church out, Jesus God incarnate, the God of the universe, the eternal God of the universe says, and Samaria. Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the whole earth. Friends, God is faithful. God was faithful in sending us his son, Jesus Christ. God is faithful to us now, and God will be faithful on the other side of eternity all the way. He did not forget Samaria, and he will not forget you. God was, faithful to you to, God was faithful to you in sending his son, Jesus Christ, to be your savior. In the same way that God tore Israel from his presence, Jesus Christ voluntarily went to the cross and was torn from the presence of his father, torn away from the eternal love that he had enjoyed perfectly for eternity on our behalf so that we would not suffer the same fate. 
He does not require that we turn up with our resumes or our Sunday best on. He does not require us to have achieved anything with our lives. He simply requires that we come to him with the open hands of faith. Paul says in Romans 10, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. God was faithful to us in sending his son, and God is faithful to us in that he gave us his Holy Spirit, who leads us to Jesus and points us to Jesus so we might be transformed into his likeness. And though we fail again and again and again and again, and that's just this afternoon, and then tomorrow we'll fail some more, and then Tuesday, I think I've got scheduled, I'm going to fail some more. Not that I intend to, I'm not planning on it, just in case you're thinking, like, oh, Jim is planning some sin on Tuesday. I'm not planning sin on Tuesday. But God is faithful to us, even though we are faithless towards him. Second Timothy says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. It is in God's nature to be faithful to us. He cannot deny himself. It is by his grace that we are transformed and made more and more into the likeness of Jesus. None of us here are who we are meant to be. None of us here are who we are meant to be, and yet by God's grace, if you're a Christian, none of us are who we once were. God is in the business of transforming our lives. So God was faithful to us in sending us his son. God is faithful to us now, and God will be faithful to us to the very end. When we step over into the other side of eternity and we stand before the judgment throne of God, Jesus will be by our side. He will stand with us. His, his perfect righteousness, his perfect record of sinlessness will be fully applied to us. God will look at us and he will say, our oh, righteous one. And our sin will be back on the cross, forgotten forever. Friends, our God is a faithful God who delivers on his promises. You might feel forgotten. He has not forgotten you. You might feel left behind. He has not left you behind. He is faithful. He will not forsake you. He is by your side. As part of our worship earlier, we read Lamentations 3, 22 to 23. Let me just read that to you again. Because of the Lord's faithful love, we do not perish, for his mercies never end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature and multiply disciples and communities that depend upon, declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others. But please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.